Hi, and uh, welcome to um, our podcast. Um, and today I have with me Professor Sean Ewan, who is the Foundation Director, Director of the Melbourne Posh Centre um, for Indigenous Health and is also Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous. So we're going to talk a little bit today across a range of topics and I think uh, we're hoping we can have a, a bit of a chat um, and uh, and I want to get a sense of some of the challenges that, that you face because you've got a role um, that um, has got some different elements to it. So so yep. maybe you could tell us a little bit about the role that you, you have and, and how you how you balance all of those demands and expectations. Yep. Um, thanks, Neil, and thanks for the opportunity to have a, uh, a chat. The uh, I'll just correct you on the pronunciation first. It's the Poach Centre, um, named after Greg Poach uh, and his uh, partner, wife Kay Van Norton Poach, uh, who gifted us $10 million about five years ago uh, to establish a, the Poach Centre. Um, and that Poach Centre, of which I'm the Uh, Foundation Director has a focus on uh, Indigenous leadership development and Indigenous PhD enrolments. Um, And we set a target of 20 new PhD enrolments by 2020, which we hit this year. So it's great. Um, And we run a leadership program and we're off to London in about four weeks to uh, provide that experience for the the fellows. Uh, And I can talk a bit more about that later. But uh, in the sense that internationalisation is one of the things that I'm really interested in, in um, Indigenous development. The other role which takes up more of my time now is the Pro Vice-Chancellor role that you mentioned. Uh, I think I've been in that role for about two years. Um, it's a fantastic role, a great opportunity, but it, uh, not but, and, it crosses all of the um, other portfolios, teaching and learning, research, um, engagement, as we had, and, and advancement. So, uh, it's both exciting, um, and instead of complaining about being too busy, I like to say that I'm often overwhelmed with opportunity. Um, it's a wonderful time, and as you were at the Traditional Owners and Elders Reference Group yesterday, as we discussed, I think at the university we're at a tipping point now in uh, in a positive sense around our Indigenous programs and the opportunities that we've got in the next uh, 10, 20 uh, years and so on. I was going to pick up on that um um, because yesterday um, you played a video from the vice chancellor, um, and you you, ex, you know introduced it by saying that the traditional owners and elders had had an opportunity to to meet with with Duncan, mm. um, and on the back of that um, he had started to shape his thinking, um, and you then played as a video which was mm. for a particular purpose, but nevertheless I was pretty blown away by it. Um, mm. So I wonder whether you could could sort of tell us a little bit about, um, first of all, um, that initial discussion that he was able to have and any kind of insights that you've subsequently had about his thinking and, mm. and how we respond um, to, to the agenda. So when we, well, we clearly knew we were getting a new vice-chancellor and the university's changed since uh, Glyn was uh, appointed, what, were the 15 years ago now, and it struck me that it would be uh, appropriate and opportune for the traditional owners and elders to welcome Duncan to country and to the university. And when I raised this, there was uh, someone who said to me, oh, we should check if Duncan's all right with that. And my response was, it's not up to Duncan. We're setting the tone that actually he's been invited by the traditional owners and elders to to Parkville, um, to Victoria, to Australia uh, and to the university. And 
it was a really interesting occasion. I have. You were saying that um, it was it was the traditional owners and elders who had invited him onto the campus mm. and to the land, and it was the first time that you'd seen him being, uh, or the second time that you, you, you'd perhaps seen him being nervous, and um, and so you were. So, uh, so the elders came up to the ninth floor of the Roman Priestly Building, otherwise known as the Ivory Tower, and um, uh, Duncan and Sarah were there, and, and there was a sense of occasion, whilst it was informal, um, but a sense of Im- of importance and of, of ceremony. We had the didgeridoo uh, being played. Uh, Nawit Caroline gave a welcome, um, and... Uh, as I said, Duncan was visibly moved and a bit nervous. Now, this is not to, to drop Duncan into it. He's a person like we all are, but actually about the importance of welcoming someone to country in a way that's unique to Australia. And it goes very much to the narrative that I think we're trying to create. And as the new university strategy finds legs, how do we think about our university as an Australian, a great Australian university that serves the world? We're not a pale imitation of London or Edinburgh or Oxford. Um, and by having the elders welcome Duncan, we're actually setting up a, 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 a dynamic which is actually about what's foundational about being at, at Melbourne. Um, and Annie Caroline talked to uh, the group, a uh, small group about uh, Bunjil and the creation, and uh, Duncan has reinterpreted that for himself uh, appropriately, not ad-libbing as such um, and so I shared his his video back to the elders uh, as you saw yesterday and they were really pleased that um, uh, they'd been listened to, that he'd remembered, that he'd remembered names um, and with the, the breadth and massive job of a vice-chancellor that they understand um, it was an affirmation back to them of the importance of the welcome to country uh, uh, to the VC and his and his wife very shortly after they they arrived, I, I I was watching people as they were watching that video, and and people were really really moved by it, mm, mm. Um, and it had quite an impact. Uh, do you think it's an opportunity for us to sort of leverage that and uh, more broadly engage? I think it's I think it's several fold. I think it's an opportunity to reflect that for many Aboriginal people, the University of Melbourne still seen as a white colonial institution. And for the leader of that institution, and for many of us in leadership roles, to help counter that is really important. Um, I think it is an opportunity to to leverage the intent of that, which is this university needs to continue to work really hard uh, to open its doors to all sorts of people that have been historically excluded for a whole range of reasons. Um, and I think that's being signalled right from the top, but it, but it, but in a whole range of um, different agendas around diversity and inclusion. So you mentioned twenty um, PhD students as a as a kind of target, um, but but what's what's some of the thinking beyond beyond that? Yep. Uh, so as I said, we have two elements. One's the PhD recruitment and one's leadership. And I'll talk a little bit about both of them if I can. Having um, uh, recruited twenty new. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander PhDs to the Faculty of Medicine, but actually impact across the whole university. Our numbers have grown from, I think, 17 research high degree students in 2015 to about 45 or more now. So that's a terrific growth. Um, 
it's about so so the reason for that is saying okay if you want to have uh, influence and agency across academia the health sector policy and government and community how do we support your educational qualifications or recognition of them through a doctoral program the next phase of that for us is to um, uh, think international so I had my advisory board meeting this week and that has uh, uh, Fiona Stanley on it, Professor Fiona Stanley, Professor Glenn Bowes, Professor Paparangi Reid uh, from Auckland, uh, Mr. Red Richardson as the donor's representative, and Uncle Kevin Coombe. And the conversation was about how do we interna- internationalise our PhD experience. So Chancellery Research have um, International Research Training Group scheme, and we're going to propose that we have uh, three great universities, Melbourne, Auckland and Toronto, and how do we provide uh, partnerships, really firm partnerships with those those other two institutions, a tripartite arrangement, so that PhD students can enrol at Melbourne and or Toronto and or Auckland. And in an inter- international sense, we grow up a cohort of the next generation of um, Indigenous First Nations, Māori PhDs and then early career health professionals. Similarly, and there's a parallel to what we've done with the leadership program, when we were developing the leadership program, I, I spoke to the now Vice-Chancellor at University of Tasmania, but then uh, Master at Ormond, Rufus Black, and said, uh, seeking his advice on the program. And Rufus said to me, what do you think Indigenous, youngish, early career people need in terms of leadership development that other people might not? And it was a really great prompt for me because not coming from a deficit model, my answer was, actually, if they've succeeded in the health sciences in an early career probably no more kind of leadership 101 than than anybody else. But if you think about historical disadvantage or historical exclusion um, and some of those barriers, uh, it was about thinking uh, network development. We're just getting to the stage now in health sciences where Aboriginal people, um, say doctors, are second generation in family, but that's just starting. Uh, rather than... Uh, what might be a little more common in the non-Aboriginal context is uh, my dad's a doctor, my uh, dad's leading, or my mum's leading, um, you know, the College of Surgeons, and this 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 strong social and professional network in the health sciences that's not there. So thinking about both the PhD program with Toronto and Auckland and the leadership program, how do we support people's network development, accelerate people's network development, and therefore their social and professional capital, so that um, their opportunities, their influence, their agency is is enhanced. And that's what I think uh, sort of the key work of the Poach Centre is. Um, and with the support, I mean, it's part of the faculty, of course, but with the support of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences, with the support of um, chancellery schemes, engagement with other parts of the university, um, the, we enhance people's opportunity. Sean, there's so many uh, elements to that. One, one thing that I'd be interested to just tease out a bit more is that um, Poach is... I'm going to have got that wrong again. You got it I, right. I, did I get... Poach um, um, is, is, is around health. How, how can we start to sort of use our thinking in relation to that and apply it more broadly uh, across the university? $10 million helps, uh, but I think there's also a natural advantage in in the health sciences that there are so many Aboriginal people who have naturally moved into those areas, so there's a workforce to grow on. I think there would be opportunities uh, to do similar in the other disciplines. 
and I think it's a model that that the university is is moving reasonably quickly towards in terms of we've influenced how we do business, and so it's a bit of a cultural shift, but it's also um, opportunities that we create within the within the institution. So yes, as I said flippantly, ten million dollars might help, but actually we this should actually become core business over time. One of the things that philanthropy has enabled, enabled us to do in health is things we couldn't otherwise have done. But some of the schemes that we've set up around Indigenous PhD recruitment, for example, I'm looking for, the, for those programs to kind of segue into core business now. And then we then reset our vision. Okay, what are the other things that a centre like the Pote Centre could do? Um, and what are the things that we would do if we were gifted another $10 million uh, given that the landscape's changed so enormously over the last five years, so you have to in you have to I think keep setting your vision uh, and stretching where you want to go, and not just be set and comfortable with okay we now run a leadership program we run PhD programs to get people in. Well, you know actually they can become business as usual for the faculty and the university, and we as I said re-establish our vision for what the next thing might be. So, so just broadening it out a little bit further, then, because you've you've got the the pro vice chancellor role across the the university, and um, you, you mentioned before the numbers you, you'd met your your twenty target effectively a year early, and we've done well this year with our undergraduate um, recruitment uh, of indigenous students. So, so are there things that we can apply to our thinking at that kind of undergraduate level, at, at that entry level? Um, uh, uh, for students coming in, uh, as well as you know, any thoughts you might have along that journey, yep. to to help people through that whole pipeline. I think if you did a kind of a snapshot or an audit of our key activities over the last five to ten years across the university, you'll see that anywhere we've tried, we've our results have improved. The Bachelor of Arts Extended Program and the Bachelor of Science Extended Program have helped increase our numbers. Uh, in entry into arts and science, the uh, the poach program around PhD recruitment has accelerated our work there. The leadership of others down, um, say, in the Faculty of Business and Economics and so on, and Melbourne Business School with the Murrah program, there's people coming through there. So, my my response would be: we have to choose what we want to want to improve and and do something. Um, and the figures that you've just referred to show an increase uh, off a low base, but a significant increase in graduate coursework students. As well, yeah. That's, I think, where we need to start focusing much more strongly on getting people into our graduate coursework programs. Um, so it's a bit of a, a Pollyanna answer in terms of whatever we focus on will we'll get results, but actually history, recent history shows that to be reasonably true. So um, just thinking about the wrap, because I think that that kind of gives us some lessons perhaps there. Um, the things that you focus on mm. is something you just said, or, or the things that you're trying to measure are the things that get attention. How are we going with um, both the implementation, but, but, but more importantly than that, the, the difference the implementation can make to the community? So we have... Uh, an Elevate RAP, which is the highest level reconciliation action plan that Reconciliation Australia kind of recognises. Um, we 
uh, are tracking pretty well on most things um, in terms of the areas that we have set ourselves to do. Some things will will probably take a little longer than we had thought. Other things will go more quickly. But you know, it's such a massive institution that that you find opportunities and you 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 go with them. I don't, partly because we're so in in the middle of it, I don't really have a sense of how our current reconciliation action plan and activities are influencing or being seen more broadly. But I might reflect on a slightly different approach, uh, a different angle, which is uh, a year ago uh, we were recruiting for someone to a, a level D position. They're an alumni of this university. They haven't been here for, for a very long time. And when we got them back here and when they agreed that they would come, they actually made the observation that since their time at university, it was a, it was a foundationally different place, uh, that the Indigenous uh, recognition, representation, activities, research, teaching and learning were almost unrecognisable from their time here as a student. And I would suggest that we do the same kind of reflective piece in in you know three or four years time. We'll say the same kind of thing. That's not uh, you know aren't we doing wonderful things? But this is this is kind of there is social change happening, and we're a part of it. And in some areas we lead, in some areas we follow. But most universities around the country are thinking about pro vice chancellors, indigenous. Many places are thinking about the kind of research that they can do in in indigenous studies, indigenous related research. There's growing recognition of indigenous knowledges in curricula. So it's it's not just us. It's, I'd say, kind of a, a social movement, for want of a better word. But we'll recognise that more clearly with hindsight. And I think with our current rap, we're a bit, bit in the middle of it to really answer your question about the effect that it might be having. And are there any aspects of it that cause you sort of room for concern or or you think that there are things where you've been surprised that we've perhaps made more progress than we thought or less progress than we we thought um so i'll go to an area in university services um procurement um there is now a really i think sophisticated social procurement policy that was completely non-existent a couple of years ago um i think we've got opportunities uh, as as to how that's actually realized is yet to actually be seen uh, but I think the framing is in place and so that's an area I was pleasantly surprised about um, in terms of both the sophistication and the presentation of, of how the university would do that and recognising what our opportunities are around procurement uh, to change, to, to contribute Indigenous businesses, to change how the university does business and so on. So that's an area that's actually surprised me if we went through a, a stock take of all of the fact, uh, activities happening across, say, the academic divisions, what's really surprising is, it's not surprising how different each faculty is, but it's surprising that the, the range of activities that are happening are so diverse, and yet all thinking about uh, increasing Indigenous staff numbers, increasing Indigenous student numbers, representation um, in the built environment, uh, the work that the student precinct uh process has has led about having indigenous at the heart of that 
really uh, such a diverse range of positive stories going on that if you listed them, you'd, I would, and I continue to be surprised when it's presented to me in a in a paper. That's this is fantastic. Mm. So a lot of kind of what you're describing is it's almost sort of step change. You get to a point and then you see a new opportunity and you pursue that, like the social procurement policy, or you mm. see something else. And do you think we've got the flexibility within the organisation to be able to leverage all of those? possibilities that come our way or, or how perhaps putting it slightly differently how how do we make sure that we retain the focus we talked about a moment ago so that we're focusing on the things that are going to have the most impact so my response to that is letting people get on with with their core business so what i mean by that is um if indigenous development indigenous related opportunities are just a tack on then I don't think we're getting meaningful change. If we go back to our opening conversation about a great Australian university, and I think this university is full of some really amazing people, I also have a sense that people are mostly good. And if you align what we want to do around Indigenous development with what I think is the intrinsic goodness of people and and the direction the university is going in, um, it may be a laissez-faire approach to governance, but I would rather see the different areas get on with what they want to do um, and be supported in the ways that they want to include or embed Indigenous approaches in that. And then you get this, this amazing array of activity. So so from a kind of service perspective, you know, are there things that you think that we could be doing to support, to provide some of that? I, I think we've got some way to go in terms of... So, University service is a big chunk of the university. You employ lots of people. How do we think about Indigenous employment in in that area of or that part of the that arm of the university? How do we think about uh, internships into the kind of work that you do um, that would enable Indigenous people to have experience in the IT areas that make up a large chunk of I think your workforce. Yeah. How do we think about, and, and not just in, I mean, university services as a, as a separate silo, but how do we think about just the presence of uh, Indigenous peoples within the subsets of university services? And their Aboriginality is, it, it brings to the diversity of the workforce, but they're not there just because of their Aboriginality. And how do we, uh, how do we build up that part of, of our employment um, I think it's a. I do think it's a challenge because of the, the supply, the, the workforce that we've got to draw from, and that's why I started talking about internships. How do we think about the relationship between uh, students, undergraduate, graduate coursework, and PhD, and the opportunities that they have to learn um, and be interns at the university? Uh, I think we. I think there's some opportunities there. It's been one of the challenges that I've I've kind of thought about over the years that we have got such a range of activities, functions, professionals, um, not just within university services, but across the academic divisions and chancelleries. And how can we create learning opportunities for our students, either through spending time with some of these folk or, or mentoring with some of these folk or being coached or, or, or even being able to, as you said, get kind of work experience. Um, it's been one of those nuts that's been really hard to crack. Um, but but I, I, I've kept reflecting that, you know, within this community of 8,000 people, there must be some opportunities we can leverage in that way. Yeah, I agree. I, I also have 
voices in the back of my head telling me why it's difficult yeah. <laughs> um, and how we think about the opportunities across the board. But we're embarking on a really significant piece of work across the institution around work integrated learning, for example. Yeah. Uh, how does the university, as what I would describe as an authentic institution, apply work integrated learning to its own workforce? Mm-hmm. How do we use the 8,000 people we've got as part of that work integrated learning agenda. Um, so I, I think, I think there's opportunities there. So, so you, you mentioned just just in passing there that you, you've you've got some. You said the voices in your head telling you about some of those challenges. And can can you just talk through what 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 makes some of those things really um, pressing in people's minds at that point? No, we don't want to hear all the voices in my head. Um, I'll share some with you. <laughs> no, no, I, I was I was referring to some of uh, some of the conservatism of the institution. You talked before, or you used the phrase uh, "flexible." I don't think we would describe the university as flexible. Yeah. Um, and so, what I was referring to was um, we've done things in a particular way for a long time. I think. Look, this is an overstretch and an overstatement, but we don't want to become the Kodak of of GO8 or of the universities. How do we think in a how how do we embed some flexibility and some innovation rather than the voices in my head where we can't do this because of, we can't do this because of. I think we should try and go to, yeah, let's give it a go as our first response, rather than we can't because of um and the whole range of reasons that, that appear insurance, uh, conflicts of interest, and so on. So we need to unpack some of those things and make the op- best of the opportunities that we've got. Um, so uh, perhaps just going back a little bit to, to kind of some of the thinking about students, um, and, and can you give us your thoughts on, on um, what are some of the challenges that um, Indigenous students face when coming to a place that's perhaps not as flexible or perhaps... You mentioned Ivory Tower before, and and you can probably put that around the edge of the campus mm. uh, or campuses. Um, can you share with us your your perspectives on that? Uh, yes, I think uh, we have our highest ever number of Indigenous Chancellor Scholars this year. Yeah, I think that was fourteen. F- yes, fourteen. Like um, and so, what I want to unpack is our notion of an Indigenous student. We have really high achieving. Indigenous students. Uh, we have students who, mostly through uh, uh, disadvantage of opportunity, uh, will be coming in through some of our other entry-level programs through the Bachelor of Arts Extended, Bachelor of Science Extended. So my comment to you is, or my response to you is, the diversity of our Indigenous student body uh, means that we need to think about that flexibly. Yeah. I do think and it's changing, isn't it? I, I think one of the things that was really striking yesterday uh, in the discussion was the number coming through Bachelor of Arts Extended and then directly into the Bachelor of Arts, and that yep. has changed yep. uh, over the last few years. Yep. So it is a changing dynamic. And it, and with that changing dynamic, our service response, if you like, also has to be different and agile. So how do we think about the role of Indigenous student support? How do we think about the kind of recruitment that we do? I think our challenges are in, and I think this is not just for Indigenous students, I think our challenge is to provide curricula in which all of our students have an opportunity to see themselves. 
I don't think our work, I don't think our academic workforce reflects our student body mm. in a diversity context, uh, both Indigenous and much broader than that. And I think there's a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that students uh, both have a better time thinking about student life um, when elements of who they are, their lived experience is reflected in the curricula that they learn. So that to um, reference the VC's video, it's not just the representation of 57-year-old white men. Yeah. How do we think about that for all of our students' experience? And, and how do we recognise that most of us that are, are either leading in the university or developing curriculum had a foundationally, I think, or fundamentally different student experience to what a student has, has today. Now. Yeah. Um, and and the demographic is changing more broadly. People mm. are commuting. They're spending longer time traveling to get mm. to the campuses. There's there's the challenges that presents. We've got students who have caring responsibilities. Um, there's there's all of those elements which historically perhaps were not as present in their lives and and that responsiveness to that changing demographic i think is quite challenging for us as, a, as an institution yeah i agree i think it is challenging i think there's a lots of good work uh and thinking going on to address the challenge not all of that's visible um but it, but the specifics of indigenous i think there's a bunch of work that we're trying to get uh happening around rep, uh, representation and visibility of Indigenous knowledges, if you like, uh, across the curriculum in all disciplines. Um, and just just reflecting too, um, yesterday, um, again, Marcia was talking about um, the Global Centre. Can you give us a little bit of the thinking in relation to that? Because, you know, your comment then just sparked that in my mind that this is another opportunity for us to... Um, to, to kind of start changing the way we think about things? So we want to think about what a global institute for Indigenous knowledge would be and what it would look like at this university and what the opportunities there are. And we've done some work which shows that across the university there's an amazing range of relevant coursework, there's an amazing range of research, um, and lots of that goes under the radar. How might you enhance the work that people are doing uh, so that it becomes visible? Um, and similarly with our other great, if you like, centres of excellence in the institution, both attracts international visitors, experts in their field, um, uh, attracts international collaboration, is both an inwards and outwards kind of um, centre which, which enhances the work that we're doing. Um, I talked about my Pro Vice-Chancellor portfolio uh, as cutting across research, teaching, learning and, and engagement and advancement. Indigenous knowledge doesn't sit in any one faculty. It doesn't sit in any one yeah. knowledge yeah. discipline. And I think the opportunity to, to think about how we would support uh, cross-disciplinary work, um, an example would be Indigenous agribusiness. How do you think about um, uh, vet and ag science uh, in terms of agriculture? Indigenous knowledges around um, seeds and, and growing things and so on. But the business opportunities there and thinking about the work we're doing in faculty of business and economics, you wouldn't necessarily just put those two faculties together. 
But you think about Indigenous agribusiness as something that's uh, important. There was an article in the ABC about it just last week, about the opportunities there. And you and you embed the Indigenous knowledges that will contribute to that kind of thinking. That's not something that naturally just fits in any one of our current faculties. So how do we think about those those opportunities? And how do we give visibility? I think that's the, the to, to make some of those connections. Because in some ways we're so faculty or... or or research centre, department, school, faculty, mm. separated? How, how do we get that sort of cross-cutting dialogue going on to create that, that new opportunity that we're talking about? Yep, and that's what I think the, the, the strategic thinking is. How do we look across the parapets of each of the, uh, of the faculties and, and bring some of this work together for, for both mutual benefit but for, for enhanced impact? And again, to have a centre or have a have an arrangement which becomes then globally visible. If we're going to be a great Australian university, surely a, a, a precondition of being a great Australian university is to have a, a fantastic Indigenous Studies program across the breadth of the university. Otherwise, we're just a great university that happens to be in Australia. Yeah. So what would be your ambition for that in, in a kind of curriculum sense? Uh, my ambition for that would be that Actually, every every student that graduates from this institution has a really good understanding of place, that they know that they've come to Melbourne because they've done at least one subject or embedded content in their major, if, if, if you like, uh, that draws on unique and particular Indigenous knowledge and knowledge systems from Australia, not necessarily from Melbourne and Victoria. I think we're a national institution, but that they, they cannot possibly finish a degree with about significant exposure to Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous people and Indigenous professors. Um, and then as you grow that, you then uh, kind of overlay the international part. If you're, if you're understanding an Australian sense, well, how, how, do you, how do you understand that in New Zealand, yep. in Aotearoa? How do you understand or how do you draw on that from uh, First Nations or, other, or, or even other parts of, of Asia in terms of Indigenous ways of knowing and doing? But we can't do the international bit without doing the doing the local yeah. bit first. That's that's really exciting. I know colleagues in academic services would be chomping at the bit to to mm. kind of work um, with with academic colleagues around that uh, kind of course thinking and yep. subject thinking and planning. It, it sounds mm. really exciting. And a lot of work. It would be a huge amount of work, but I think we'd be ready to to to, to engage with that. Yeah. Um, you know, just slight different tack. Um, we're, we're, we've been talking a little bit and talking to um, university services staff. Is there any um, perspectives that you'd, you'd want to share with us about about what we what we do and, and how we do it and how we could do it better? Um, we're always looking and hoping that we're we're able to to meet our our, our customers, our academic colleagues, and our students, um, and 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 go that step further. So, any thoughts that you would share as we strive for service excellence? Uh, I find uh, this is a, this is your most difficult question because I actually don't have a great answer for you. When parts of uni services have the opportunity to engage and contribute, uh, and that we facilitate those opportunities. For example, the volunteers that come up to Garma, for example, we know from their from what they report back that both they have a great time, they learn a lot, and then when they come back to work, they 
that kind of infiltrates. Yeah. Similarly with the Jarwin experiences that, that people have the opportunity to do, that, that you know, our premise on Jarwin was if the only thing that we get out of the Jarwin partnership is that people in the university have the opportunity to contribute to an Aboriginal organisational community, that's enough. But what we've found is that people coming back are have new perspectives, want to share that. They're developing their own cohort within the institution. So I don't think I've really answered your question except to say that if we can think of more ways for opportunity of engagement, then I think uh, it helps the diversity of thinking and, and uh, the mindset of the, of the institution as a whole. So, so with these, we always ask some questions about your, your favourite location on, on, on campus or one of the campuses. We were down at Southbank yesterday. Mm. Amazing new space there at the Buxton uh, uh, Contemporary. Um, so is there a, a location that, that really speaks to you? Well, the Metro Tunnel doesn't. <laughs> we're um, li- literally living on top of that at the moment. But having... Uh, look, the, we have some great green spaces and what we've missed with the University Square being closed for so long uh, and with all the dust that comes from that is such a joy to walk past there today and see the grass is being laid, the plants are being planted. I think more of the trees are being cut down, but uh, it's not too far away that we'll be able to use the square again. Um, and it's close to my um, the Poach Centre building, so that's often a nice place just to get out and get a bit of air, particularly at this time of year. And um, a, a, a book or, or, or writer that's had a particular impact on your way of thinking about things? Um, the Vice-Chancellor's emails. <laughs> um, not, not a particular way of thinking. I, I've just had a month's leave, which was fantastic, uh, and... Uh, the book that I, the, one of the novels I read was Call Me By Your Name, which is also a recent film. But it's just at its essence um, a love story. And the humanity of the way it's written and the geographical location and the way that's described um, just takes you to a different place. So did it change my thinking or influence my thinking? Probably not much, but it was a nice escape into the humanity of yeah. and, and goodness. You talked about goodness of people before. That, that mm. that's something that comes through in in conversation and engaging with you. It, what's 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 given you that perspective in in your life? I've probably been surrounded by lots of good people. I've probably been fortunate not to have to deal with people that are intrinsically not good. But probably also from my training in in a sociological sense. The less good, I think, comes from people's lived circumstance and the influences on their life rather than them themselves. So, uh, again, maybe it's a bit naive, but I think people are intrinsically good. That's a great kind of way of viewing the world uh, and our engagements with each other. Because if you start from that perspective, um, I think it's a really a really strong basis on which to build a relationship. And, and the final question is, is always about music. Um, and we we can't we can't play the music, um, or, or or incorporate it. But um, is is there a, a piece of music that really speaks to you? Uh, yes and no. Um, so I go with the wind. So Bohemian Rhapsody. So Queen's been playing. Okay. Nora Jones was on the TV last night. So she got a run on the on the music later in the evening. Uh, uh, the musicals that are on, they get played. So I I probably describe it as eclectic um and 
you know, there's so much great music around that uh, I'm influenced by what I've most recently heard. Lots of it's old. Um, most of it's old, I would guess. Uh, probably reflected kind of my youth and, and earlier years, but that would be uh, my musical response. And did did you see the film, the 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 Bohemian Rhapsody? I saw it on a plane somewhere. Yeah, I so saw it on I, a plane. I wanted to see it in the big cinema yeah. and hear it properly, and I just didn't get a chance. And I'd watched it several times while other people were watching it, as I do on a plane. Yeah. Um, I eventually watched it. I think I was coming back from Auckland or something. Um, Mm. I think it would have been better in a big cinema with big noise. Yeah, I, I was really nervous about what I thought and how it might play out because that was a mm. period of my kind of growing mm. up. And um, um, I was really struck by my reaction at the end of realising how, how old Freddie Mercury was. Mm. And, mm. Um, and so, you know, being on a plane in a very public place, I mean, there's tears, <laughs> tears. running down my face at mm. the end of that. Mm. Uh, mm. I don't think it's, well, I'm, I, I know uh, he, he won an Oscar for it, but I don't think in and of itself it's a, a sort of Oscar winning mm. production. But, mm. but there was just moments of it and elements that certainly brought mm. that kind of youth Mm. Uh, uh, um, washing back on me. Yeah, and I think that's partly my response to the music question, that, you know, music in your youth that comes back and yeah. haunts you. Um, Midnight Oil was the first concert that I went to in uh, Memorial Drive in Adelaide, and so when the oils get a run, you, you, you hear that. Well, Sean, thanks so much for your, your time today. We've covered quite a range of things, mm. um, and it's great being able to get to know you a little bit more other than in the formal meetings that we often Indeed. have. Um, so I really appreciate your time and, um, and hope that um, some of the things that you've said are things that we can work on back um, in our day-to-day university services no, roles. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Neil. Thank you.